We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. What's the difference between supporting your partner in times of trouble and trying to rescue them? What's the difference between asking your partner for help and expecting they will make you feel better? It's a fine line because if you love someone, you don't want to stand idly by when they're down. And if they, in turn, love you, shouldn't they do everything in their power to take away your pain? The dynamic of rescuing and being saved goes to the heart of many fairy tales like Cinderella and most modern movies. The hero, or nowadays the heroine, saves someone and in that act saves or redeems him or herself. It goes so deep into our culture that we seldom question whether it serves us or not. My witness today is Chris Partridge, who has been a transpersonal therapist for 25 years and is the author of a new book, Wake Up, What Are Your Emotions Really Telling You? It has two chapters we're going to focus on today, the inner rescuer, and because a rescuer needs to rescue someone, the inner victim. Chris, why does rescuing go so deep into our culture, do you think? Well, hello, Andrew, and thanks for inviting me along for this talk today. Good to be with you. Yes, the rescuer, the knight in shining armour, the person that comes along when we're in need, helps us, facilitates us, saves us. As you said, it's so endemic in our culture, in our society, in many religions. Christ, the saviour of the world fairy tales with knights in shining armour on white chargers, superheroes, so many good films, so many children love films about superheroes and someone that can come along and save the day. So culturally and archetypally, we are really programmed from quite a young age that to help, to be selfless, to be there for others, to put others' needs before our own, it seems to be unquestioningly a good thing. I always think, though, that if we're too selfless, it follows that there's less of ourselves, of our true selves in everything we do. We come and come in with a bit of an agenda, really. It, it almost feels like pressure on us, actually, to be there for others. And we gain validation. We gain self-worth by being there for others. And that, on the surface, is a great thing. It leads to a great sense of community, a sense of caring, Obviously, back in our tribal days, we would have to look out for each other when we're out on the open plains of the Serengeti, protecting each other. So there's lots of natural sort of mother nature reasons why we do this. But if we carry on doing it unquestioningly, and if it operates from our shadow parts, then I think problems can start to arise because we can often squeeze ourselves so much, our true selves, that we only see ourselves in this very much one-dimensional place. So you've used a term that I understand, but I think we better explain very quickly, otherwise it's not going to make a lot of sense. What do you mean by our shadow side? I think it's all the qualities that we were told as children weren't good, weren't desirable. So to think of yourself before your brother or sister to take the first fruit out of the bowl, to not offer the food around the room before you take it yourself. There's, there's that sort of quality, you know, don't be greedy, don't be selfish. Family hold back was the phrase when we had guests at our house, it, that we would be told this beforehand, that it wouldn't actually be said at the time. But, you know, we're told family hold back, which is great. But there is an, the other side of that. And the other side of that is what? The other side of that is how a healthy ego operates in sustaining one's own needs. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs in terms of survival, safety and security, it's those bottom layers of that triangle that he refers to as hierarchy are really important because unless we take care of those, we can't really be there for others. We end up giving from a sort of an empty place and then we become 
devoid of so many things. We push our feelings and emotions down. We push our emotional intelligence down. So it's quite a high price to pay, really. And this is sometimes what grows out, this sort of fundamental programming that you refer to, hold the family back. Yes. I mean, I think this is something we're going to come back to over and over again. With absolutely everything, there is a positive side and then there's a shadow side. So it is great to help other people to be a rescuer, but there is a shadow side to it as well, which we're going to be looking at too. You can't have one without the other. So while we've got this Cinderella superhero, knight in shining armour, rescuer culture, we've also, and it's something that sort of you can hardly switch the news on without getting what we seem to have a victimhood culture as well. So lift up for me how the victimhood culture impinges on this whole topic. Well, yes, as you said, referred to before, we can't really, the rescuer can't do anything without an available victim, an available person that needs caring, a person that's perhaps feeling vulnerable and under-resourced. So the rescuer and the, the victim needs, needs a victim. And I use, I don't use that word in a derogatory sense. It, you know, victim has many positive qualities. It, it's good to say that when we're in need and when we need support. So I don't want to sort of lose ourselves in what can be sort of a negativity term of the victim. But it's, yes, the rescuer needs the victim. If they don't have the victim, they can't do their thing. And it feels on the surface when you look at it that the rescuer has a lot of the power in that kind of relationship. They're the one in charge and taking control and knowing what's best. Where someone stays stuck in their victim in a very sort of unresourceful place, then they can actually be quite manipulative over what they want the rescuer to do. Um, and there can be this dance that's set up that can go on, particularly in personal relationships for, for many years, a codependency. So it makes it difficult sometimes to break free of the games that get played, really. And everyone gets some superficial needs met in that dynamic, but not really, not really going deep down into their what I call their transpersonal self, where their real, their real shadow qualities needs to be looked at and brought out into the light. And at the bottom of a lot of arguments in my therapy office is, I'm more hardly done by than you, and therefore you should rescue me. So people are actually competing for the victim place. So, you know, I do all of this, so therefore you should do this. And they say, oh no, but I do all of this, so you should be doing that. Normally centering around who's going to collect the child from childcare or, you know, who's going to brush their teeth in the morning. But there often is a competition for who is going to be the victim and who's going to be the rescuer. Absolutely. And the reason that it's so sort of alluring, the victim state, it is so endemic is because it's, a, in, in one respect, it's quite an infantile place. I mean, when we're young as children, we have to be vulnerable. We, we are needy naturally. And our parents adapt themselves to manage our emotional moods. So it's very easy to slip back into that place of slightly childlike, if you like, slightly infantile, because it is so natural to us. And because we experience that as children, we can often carry on using that, if you like, technique or mechanism in order to get others to do what we need to do to meet our probably unmet childhood needs that get played out in adulthood too, particularly in relationships. So when you have a rescuer and a victim, we have a third person in this dance. And I think it would be very helpful if you have got the ability at the moment listening to this to draw a triangle. I always sort of do a unilateral triangle. So each side is equally long as the other. And on one corner, you put the word rescuer. On the bottom corner, you put the word victim. And then on the third corner, you've got the third part of, um, I'm going to call it the game. It's not really a game, but that's as good a way of putting it. So it's the third part of the uh, drama triangle. And what's on the third part, Chris? Yeah, the third part, as Stephen Cartman coined the term, or came up with the idea of the, what he called the drama triangle, is the persecutor. So that's the place that either the rescuer or the victim can slip into or even consciously move to when they can't get their needs met in either the rescuer or the victim role. So to give an example of that, if the rescuer is trying and trying and trying to help someone in their victim place 
and the victim doesn't respond in the way that the rescuer needs in order to feel validated, then the rescuer can easily slip round into persecutor and start criticising the victim for staying stuck. So it's a very easy place to go. After all I've done for you, and this is how you reward me. Exactly. You can hear that I've sat there and watched many games of this. And I think the thing that is incredibly important to say is that once you're in a triangle, it is the strongest thing possible. They build bridges out of triangles because it's incredibly difficult to break. And you don't stay in one place very long. So, You can see my persecutor, after all I've done for you and you don't do this and you don't do that, you can almost hear me slipping down into the victim place. Nobody loves me, everybody hates me, and I'm going to go into the garden and eat worms. And I'm now in the victim place and I've been through all three places in the triangle. Indeed, I call it the washing machine cycle because you can go round and round and round and not particularly be able to sort of clean the the dirty laundry of your psyche because you're stuck in a never-ending cycle of going round the drama triangle. And um, it's a very seductive game and because superficial needs are often met initially, we get stuck in it thinking we need to try even harder to get our needs met. But if, unless, we, unless we can stand back and look at what's happening in a sort of a, a meta-analysis way, then we're forever going to be stuck in that washing machine cycle, sadly. Because on one level, it seems like a good place to be the rescuer. But mm. I, I think we really need to pin down why isn't it a good place to be the rescuer? Well, I would sort of nuance that by saying if you are able to turn your rescuer on and off adequately and suitably according to the needs of those around you, then I would suggest that's a good thing. I mean, many people who are natural rescuers, often the older siblings in the family, maybe had to take care of their own needs when younger siblings came along or if there was a sick younger sibling. They're quite good at bracketing off their own needs and they might move into professions such as policemen or coast guards or social workers, even therapists. So there's always a, as you said, there's always a, <laughs> there's always a bright light side to these qualities. But unless we can go back and look at our initial emotional wound, what took us into this rescuer ego state, unless we can rescue ourselves from the quagmire of what brought us into this place to start with, then we will forever try to compensate our own healing by rescuing the world and, of course, end up absolutely burnt out and flat and exhausted and persecutory, ultimately. Because what I often find is that if you're going to be rescuing your partner, you sort of want to take a shortcut because, as you say, actually forever rescuing is absolutely exhausting. So what you try and do is you try and sort of cut their feelings down to size a bit and persuade them not to feel them. Or it's not so bad is a sort of a way of trying to rescue somebody and try and sort of make their feelings smaller so that you can sort of look after them. But it never goes particularly well. Why not? I think they're all well-meaning platitudes, aren't they? Trying to, I always use the analogy of sticking a, you know, a last plaster over a, a gaping wound. You're, you're constantly sort of trying to maintain a scar, a wound in a way with inadequate materials because you're not really getting down to the core of the victim's reason in their victim ego state. You're not drilling right down to it. And again, this is why therapeutic support can be really helpful in in relationships when these dynamics get set up, because the well-meaningness of the rescuer is about love, is about care ultimately. It can slip over into, into control and manipulation, but on the surface it's good. But if we can take that goodness and transmute it into a sense of witnessing, of being, of caring, of perhaps negotiating, then we've got ourselves off the hook of the need to actually fix or necessarily change in order for us to feel good about ourselves. That's excellent. We'll actually look in a moment more at that sort of kind of idea and how you can actually break the triangle. But let's just understand why it is a problem, because not only is it exhausting for you, if you are the rescuer, you're actually, in a sense making your partner the victim. You are depowering them. You are sometimes being patronising towards them. You know, oh, you can't manage that, I'll do it, which 
can come from a place of, you know, being really nice, but can actually be heard as being critical. You're not able to do it. And as I say, the word patronizing comes across quite a lot. And I think it's really important to understand that, that you are making your partner into a victim. Absolutely. And we, and we, we go back to the idea that, you know, the victim can be seen as being in a fairly infantile place because infant child wounds seem to be coming up again. Unmet childhood needs are being replayed. And in terms of sort of transaction analysis ideas of parent, adult and child, you could equate the rescuer, a helper as a parental figure. And if they stay in that parental figure, then naturally the equal and opposite energy response from the victim is, is, is going to be to stay in their child. So while, again, that happens in every relationship at different points, if you get stuck in that dynamic, then it can be really quite unhelpful because the victim, as you say, doesn't actually have the chance to grow up because the rescuer has given them no space to do so. Yeah. I often hear people saying, you know, and this is something I really, really loathe, but here we go. I sometimes have women say, well, I've got three children. I've got two real children and my husband, who's a third child. And I sort of want mm. to say, well, why are you treating him like a child rather than complaining about the fact he's behaving like a child? Help me out with this. How can you break out of that? Absolutely, indeed. Yeah, we come back to the idea of blame, don't we, in a sense. And when we unconsciously blame, where it's a natural mechanism, we're actually giving away our power for our own change and our own reflection and the chance to look at our own wounds and our own real needs, our own deep needs, by simply giving all the responsibility over, over to a another or our partner. And it's quite convenient. It's quite easy to do that. The anger that we have with blame can make us feel quite empowered in a sense, but it's only an egoic, superficial power, really. It's not, again, getting underneath the grain of everything. It's not breaking down through the granularity of the emotions and really looking at what's going on underneath. So, yeah, I mean, blame, interestingly, from, from the old school, from the original meaning of blame, was to be spiritually unconscious, comes from the word blaspheme. And rather than blame a god or deity or something outside of you, the idea of blame is when you didn't look or take full responsibility for the part you were playing in the situation. Hmm, that's really lovely. I, I think I want to lift that up. So blaming is not taking full responsibility for what is going on. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, it's, it's where the original word sin comes from as well. And, and rather than you know, do a misdemeanor necessarily, blame is when we're giving away our spiritual power, not seeing what we're contributing to a situation. And often that also then becomes a form of self-blame as well. We can turn that back in on ourselves, and we can effectively sin against ourselves by blaming ourselves for situations as well. And not being gentle, not being nurturing, not being caring, which are the positive light sides of the rescuer, the more, the more sort of evolved parts of the rescuer. Now, do you find that everybody does the drama triangle or do you think there are certain types of situations where you're more likely to be doing the drama triangle? There's two ways to answer that. I think given our childhood experiences, where we were in the order of the siblings, for example, we often get a sort of a framework of where we might naturally default to in terms of the drama triangle, in terms of those ego states. But also if life events happen, maybe we're very ill or we, or we suffer a big bereavement or something that's very difficult to cope with emotionally, then we will need and naturally need to go into a victim place because we need to let in the love and the care and have someone there for us. So if, and if that happens then and it's a temporary thing, it doesn't, it's not an ongoing entrenched thing, then that, that again is, is quite healthy. But if, we can, in, in, a, in a sense, experiment with these different parts of the triangle with different ego states. I mean, there's, there's dozens of different ego states per se outside, just outside of the drama triangle. If we can experiment and play with them and just notice where we go into, you know, have a sense of that witness consciousness about what, where we tend to go. We also then give ourselves the power to move out of it as and when we want to. We're not, we're not a victim to any particular ego. So we're not even a victim to our rescuer or a victim to our persecutor in, the, in those regards. So it's kind of that ability to step back and be curious rather than beat yourself up and say, oh, that's interesting. I've just slipped into my rescuer again. Here I go again, wanting to help this person that I've only just met. What's, what's that about? Is that a way of me getting love? Yeah. 
what I think I'm hearing you saying is that we all have an inner victim, we all have an inner perpetrator, uh, persecutor, we all have an inner rescuer. But if you had a childhood that was full of drama, maybe it was drama that was resolved, or even worse, there was sort of abuse or your parents were alcoholics or something like that and nothing ever got resolved, you're naturally going to be more likely to get into the drama triangle as an adult. But it's something that everybody does. So let's start looking at how you can actually break out of this. Now, you're talking about something called witness consciousness. So that feels like it's going to be part of the key to all of this. So let's understand what witness consciousness is. I guess, it, yes, it comes from the transpersonal theory that uh, you are something greater than your ego self. Hang on. J- just before we do that, let's do our ego self then. All right. Okay. So our ego self is, as I describe it in the book, uh, a lot of the book's material is hinged around the ego and how we tend to suffer when we just stay in ego because we avoid pain and seek pleasure and we tend to be, yeah, stuck in certain ego states as, as defining who we are and held up against our deeper self or our higher self or even our spiritual self, you might say, which looks at life situations as a way of learning and growing, of bringing our shadow qualities into the light and then being kind of a whole united person and to individuate, as you, Carl Jung used to say or does say, to become the whole person we are meant to be. So the ego is our sense of I-ness, from when we're about six months old, we have a sense of where we end and the world begins. So we get a sense of separateness from six months and then we develop an ego. And it's important. It's about, as I alluded to earlier, it's about sustaining ourselves, meeting our immediate physical needs. But if we carry that or define ourselves solely through that place, then we tend to, as I talk about in the book, we tend to consume rather than contribute. We tend to react rather than respond. And we don't question our immediate reactions. We don't step back and think, oh, I've just, that's just, just triggered me. And rather than saying, I'm curious about that and try and look at the deeper meaning, which would be our higher self clicking in, we just operate from a place of anger or frustration or anxiety, what I call kind of the surface kind of protecting emotions that tend to come in that stop us looking at ourselves in any, in, in any sort of deeper sense. So yeah, the ego has its place. In the book, I, I talk about the idea that the ego helps us build our house of self as if it's the scaffolding that we need to erect in order to build our house of self, given all our experiences and our qualities through life. But at some point when the house is finished, the scaffolding can come down. But when we get stuck in ego, we over-identify with the scaffolding and we can't see the beauty of the house beyond it because we're so busy transfixed on what is now the redundant scaffolding. So to get out of ego state and get in touch with the bigger self, so little self and bigger self, We need something called witness consciousness. So let's really understand witness consciousness because ego is too busy just reacting to witness anything. I I often describe it as the train has left the station. And once a train leaves a station, it doesn't come back. So, you know, these are the automatic things that you do without even really realizing it. But if you have witness consciousness, you can see it differently. So, how do we get this witness consciousness? How do we actually step back and see the bigger picture? Indeed, that is the million-dollar question. I wish I could bottle it and sell it in three sentences and I'd be a very rich man. But yeah, I always think life conspires to wake us up to who we really are if we're prepared to see the deeper meaning in what happens. Let's say that again because that's really, really important. Yeah, I believe as a transpersonal psychotherapist that everything has meaning and that life's events, particularly more difficult or traumatic ones, are attempting to wake us up to who we really are. And who you really are is not either an inner rescuer, an inner victim or an inner persecutor. Even though you persecute yourself a lot of the time, that is not who you are. So you're something bigger than that. Absolutely. And I I would suggest that you are the witness consciousness. You are the observer 
of your ego, of how your personality has developed in order to cope with the challenges of life. A kind of basic example I use is we often say, I am sad, I am angry, I am happy, rather than say, I'm currently experiencing a sense of happiness or sadness or anger. And for me, that is a really important thing to tease out because if you over-identify, let's say with an emotional state or even an ego state, you then come to naturally define yourself by that state and then you become a victim to whatever that state is and then you give away your power for any sort of change. And then sometimes in life, we go through a fairly traumatic event which seems to shatter the persona, as Jung would call it, the social facade that we maintain in order to present ourselves to the world, which may, may have worked very well in the past, but something comes along and sort of sweeps that away or even cracks that or smashes that, which in itself is a really painful thing. But on the other side of that is this sense that, that I am not what happens to me, I am what I do with what happens to me. I am not the event, I am my ability to respond to the event. And that's where I think you grow and develop your spiritual muscle. And naturally, as a consequence of that, you have a greater ability to witness what happens rather than to define yourself by what happens. So I'm imagining that most people are saying, yes, okay, I understand that I could have witness consciousness and actually being more conscious of what's going on rather than just automatically flying off the handle is probably a good idea. So Chris, thank you. You've sold me the idea that I have a witness consciousness. I haven't got the first idea how to get in contact with it. So help me out. Well, as we often say in therapy, don't try and beat yourself up and say, I need to change my ways. The first step is simple awareness. And awareness is more than 50% on the pathway to change, I always say. So just having the ability, like Jiminy Cricket sitting on Pinocchio's shoulder, that you're sort of your little consciousness up there, just observing yourself sometimes as if from above and saying, hey, I've just noticed that I've responded to this situation with A another in the way that I've always done or the way that I did when I was young. I've been overly selfless again here. I've not spoken up for myself. I've adapted myself to someone else's needs and not shared my own needs. And just to be really gentle with yourself over that. Just, you know, offer yourself that rescuer care and love that you so easily offer out to others. And then just nurture it. I always think spirituality is not like praying for the plants to grow or the flowers to grow. It's about keep watering them, nurturing them until they naturally grow themselves. I'm sort of suspecting that meditation might be part of the key to this. Am I thinking right? I think there's so many tools, so many ways in. I think meditation is one of the principal ones where you literally sit in your own energy, in your own power. You're not seeing yourself with the lens of another. You're just noticing, which I love what meditation can be defined as noticing what the mind has been doing all along. Simply notice what your mind tends to do and where your thoughts tend to go. So be the noticer of those thoughts, again, the witnesser, rather than actually overly identifying with them. So things like meditation, any mindfulness, yoga, even listening to music where you can escape with music, with headphones on, whatever you're, even nature bathing. Often people like to go out in nature and just be in nature, be in the present moment as much as you can be. So those kind of things, along with an attitude of gratitude for everything in life, and when we have this sense of gratefulness and gratitude, it naturally quells that monkey chattery mind. It naturally quells any fears we have about life because we are grateful for all the good things. And suddenly the things that we assume are bad or scary take on a different sense, take on a different feeling. And again, it allows us to move into witnesser rather than identifier. So if you are aware that you are the rescuer in the triangle, and that's your sort of natural place, although you can zap around the triangle like everybody else, one of the things I always suggest is instead of trying to rescue, just care. And what is the difference between rescuing and caring? Nine times out of 10, it's listening, because rescuers don't know if the uh, damsel wants 
saving from the dragon, she might actually be doing quite nicely, thank you. She's got the dragon very well tamed, thank you, and doesn't necessarily need you to come along and slay it. In fact, uh, she's going to be rather angry about it. But if you listen to her, then you find out what it is that she really wants. You sort of sit beside her upset rather than trying to take it away. Sitting beside could involve just repeating back what you've just heard. Mm -hmm. So you're very upset about the way that your mother spoke to you on the telephone. Mm -hmm. And that will help your partner feel heard without actually doing anything. Asking curious questions is also really helpful as well. These are all ways of actually sitting beside and helping your partner get into this witness consciousness because instead of actually fighting you because you're leaping in to give five easy solutions to solve the problems with her mother, what you're doing is actually helping her take a step back and look at the bigger picture with a curious question. But really, listening is the superpower If actually you take away the superpower of rescuing and become the world's best listener, that Mm -hmm. would just make a a huge change to everything. What do you suggest as of ways of getting out of that rescuer position? Absolutely. And it's it's sort of the great nemesis for the rescuer is just to listen because the, the rescuer often defines that as a passive activity, as powerless. So to simply witness and as you say listen and observe is so powerful because it's all about presence it's coming back to the idea of presence of being rather than doing or fixing or changing of noticing where someone is right now because unless you notice and observe and accept where someone is right now there's no way they can move anywhere else because where they are right now has to be valued and acknowledged in many senses and as you do that and hold that mirror up. It makes it easier for your partner, friend, colleague, whoever, to be okay with themselves in that place rather than critical. Because as soon as we say to someone, you need to move from that certain place, they immediately think, oh my goodness, well, this must be bad. I've done something wrong. Why am I in this place to start with? So it just heaps on top and compounds that sense of victimness, if you like, because they're even harder on themselves. And what they need is sort of tenderness and understanding. But I think the initial thing, going back to the idea of presence, is that we can't really offer it out to others. We can't really listen well to others until we have listened to ourselves. So that is where the seed is planted through meditation or observation of one's tendencies. Being able to be there and be present for ourselves is where we can give most effectively from. So I've actually pulled out of your book three great questions that would actually help us to listen to ourselves Because that's the other thing, isn't it? That while you're busy rescuing, you're not actually witnessing yourself. So I've got three great questions that you ask that will help us witness ourselves. I'm going to tell you the ones I liked and you can perhaps explain why they're so important. The first one is, why does the same thing keep on happening to me? Yeah, so the three questions I could open up in in the first chapter of the book with... And again, I don't really know anybody on this planet that probably hasn't asked that question at some point in their lives. We feel like we're stuck in a repeating cycle. Often, again, we're told culturally and in terms of our conditioning that if you just try hard enough for long enough, you will break through. And we get very dogmatic in holding on to one particular option, one particular pathway until we either get exhausted or fate comes along to completely knock us off that pathway. So until we can actually step back and say, why am I attracting in this certain sort of person? Why does this particular experience that keep happening to me? What is it about this current trigger? And triggers are a really interesting way in to our suppressed material. Why am I triggered by a certain program on the television? Why am I triggered by that awful car accident I saw the other day it keeps giving me flashbacks it keeps giving me some sort of post-traumatic stress and to question that where that's trying to take you in terms of the kernel of yourself in terms of the stuff within yourself that you've repressed that you haven't loved that you haven't reconciled with so again it's the sort of meta-analysis of why does that same thing keep happening to me and that's what I try to address in the book through the transpersonal approach of taking that higher perspective and looking at it, looking at it down from above. 
Well, here's another higher perspective question that I think you could spend a lifetime actually thinking about, but let's have a couple of moments now, and maybe it might be something you'd like to think about today as you go through the day. What is life trying to show me about who I really am? Mm. Tell me about that question, Mm. Chris. I come back to the nature and nurture debate. I use the example in the book about siblings even going through the same childhood with the same parents can often be such such different personalities so it's it's as Jung would say we are like an acorn with the potential to grow into a certain kind of tree but we can be a very big tree a very small tree a tree with lots of acorns a tree with lots of leaves and branches so it, it depends on what you do again with what happens to you And I believe as a transpersonal psychotherapist that we all have a unique offering, a unique programming, a unique calling, if you like, to offer something out into the world. And often our sense of our own existential pain, what we found really difficult, what's really hurt within us, opens up our deeper self, our higher self, And then we kind of have a sense of where we want to alleviate others' pain. We have a sense of how we can connect with others through their common pain as well. So there's something about being okay, reconciling with our own existential pain, our own individual trauma, and then transmuting that into something valuable in a sense of alchemy, transmuting that into something valuable where we can then reach out into the world and be of service and if we can monetize that as well and earn some, some sort of living from it, then all, all the better. But that should come second from the passion of wanting to reach out and connect with others in their pain as well. And the third question is, is my treatment of my problems benefiting me or destroying me? Now, mm. how often do we ask that question? I would say very seldom, but it's a question that's really worth asking. Yes. And again, it's handing that responsibility back to ourselves, isn't it? It's sort of almost an antidote to the automatic default blaming that we can do, wanting to give our power away for the solution to our problems to a another. So it really is a self-reflecting question. And again, when we're young, we develop coping mechanisms that get us through, that help us survive. And those coping mechanisms can be so alluring and in a sense, they can be very effective. But as we get older, we realise that we're more than those coping mechanisms. We're more than the scaffolding that we've built around our house. So it's time to take down the scaffolding. It's time to release old habits and old ways and move into a new paradigm. And you could say that's, that's spiritual evolution, that's spiritual growth. You could define it as that. So that question really helps us look at our tenacity and our dogma as far as what we're really, really doing with our problems and how we can use them, again, in an alchemical sense, to transmute the lead into gold, how we can look at our problems as a way of a launch pad for takeoff, in a sense. If you'd like to contemplate those questions today, I'm going to repeat them for you. So the first one is, why does the same thing keep happening to me? What is life trying to show me about who I really am? And is my treatment of my problems benefiting me or destroying me? The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Let me tell you about my Substack newsletter, because I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mixture of relationship advice and my thoughts about building a meaningful life. I'm hoping that as it grows, it will become a shared space, somewhere you can tell me your thoughts and suggest ideas for new podcast episodes. You can find everything at themeaningfullife.substack.com, so please do sign up. Details will also be in the show notes, where you'll also find all the details of Chris and his book. 
If you'd like to get involved in other ways in The Meaningful Life, it would be great if you sent us a dilemma or a question that I can discuss with my witnesses. And I'd like to say thank you very much to the woman who has written in this letter for us to discuss. If you'd like to, by the way, send us something, go to www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast. And as you go down, you'll find there's a box to communicate with us. I'm deeply in love with my partner and think he would be the first man that I truly want to settle down with and have children. He is a good man, but he does not have the same depth of feelings that I do. Whenever we try and talk about it, all his replies come from his head rather than his heart. He says the right thing, but I don't feel them. I end up crying and getting upset and everything spirals downwards. Normally, I wouldn't worry. I would move on and find another man. For some reason, men find me attractive and have never had problems before. I understand he's been hurt by his last girlfriend and has trust issues. His mother was an alcoholic. But do we have a future if there is such a wide gap in our feelings? Don't you both have to be equally committed to get married and start a family? So, as I was sort of reading that out, I was thinking about rescuers and uh, victims and persecutors. Did they come to your mind as, as well, Chris? They did. And my heart goes out to this listener with this particular dilemma. It happens quite a lot in life, quite a lot in relationships. So, yes, it was really quite heartfelt. And I wanted to sort of unpick it and unpack it a bit through the lens of the victim and rescuer. So that's what I've done. And I hope in that sense, it gives it some structure and facilitates a way in to what's maybe going on underneath for this particular lady. So I will um, attempt to do that. This is some of my thoughts as a result. I feel this lady's natural rescuer tendency is being triggered by this partner's vulnerability. She mentions his difficulties, an alcoholic mother, an early emotional wounding. So she's really pulled in to want to take care of that. And that's a lovely, caring, you could say, loving quality. Obviously fairly seductive to her that she feels that she wants to go in and this man is quite vulnerable. So often part of the attraction, part of the allure, is that the partner for the rescuer is that the partner's not responding in a way that we would like them to. And I noticed this particular listener said that, you know, this is the first time this has happened for some reason Men have always found her attractive in the past. So I imagine that sort of challenge tension axis must be quite seductive for her. And she's, she's pulled in and intrigued and curious as to why this particular man's not responding in a way that historically has happened for this lady. So if we accept that that is the surface dynamic that seems to be appearing... Once we then dig down to the fact that the man's not responding in a way that she would like, this lady could be seen to be sort of shifting around into a victim. She feels quite helpless in this situation. So it's triggering her shadow, in a sense, her shadow victim qualities. And I think that, like everybody else, she will sometimes go into the persecutor as well, because when you cry and get upset and you spiral mm. downwards, I'm mm. sure that that will be perceived by the other person as horrible. You know, I've done all mm. these terrible things to mm. them, and I'm a terrible person, and they are feeling persecuted. Not mm. that she sets out to persecute, mm. but that's the nature of the drama triangle. You can't say, well, I'll just have A and B of the triangle. You have to have A, B, and C. That's the nature of it. And there will be times, of course, when he's persecuting, when he's holding back saying, well, you know, yes, of course, everything on paper is fine, but I don't feel it down here. That's a sort of quite a persecutory kind of thing to say. Indeed. And she doesn't say, she goes into the, the upset and the tears. She doesn't, she doesn't actually specifically mention that she's getting sort of angry and frustrated. But I, I even imagine, as you said, that that persecutory voice could be turned in on herself. Well, this hasn't happened before. It's always worked previously that men have, for some reason, have found me attractive, but not this time. So I imagine that persecutory voice could even be turned in on herself which is potentially quite destructive and quite mm. sad, but calls her to question, I guess, at some deeper level, how she values herself, how she sees herself. If it's just in terms of physical attractiveness, then there's obviously 
so much more to her than that. And is, is this situation inviting her to consider that? And there's more to you than just a rescuer as well, because as we say, that is an exhausting place to be. And in fact, you know, there's more to you than the victim as well. We, you know, we want to get out of this game and we want to get you into a bigger, oh, this is, <laughs> I never thought I'd say this word, but here we go, into a bigger consciousness. Yes. Yes, indeed, indeed. Yes, into yeah, in, into a bigger a bigger mindset that's not so entrenched in a particular way. Yeah, to to peek up above the parapet, if you like, and see what the the, the rest of the world is out there, what the rest of my world is out there, and how much more I am in this world than just a rescuer or just an attractive person who men have fallen for in the past automatically and unquestioningly. And if you're a rescuer by nature, that's the place you feel the most comfortable with, what will seem to be the answer would be if you can just rescue this person, if you can just help them understand their emotions better, or you can take them along to a therapist that will sort all of this out, etc., etc. And so you're actually going deeper into the rescuer kind of place. So we don't want her to do that because we're just going to have another game of drama triangle. So mm. how can she get out of this particular bind? I think a really good self-reflecting question to ask is if this man were to respond in a way that she would need or would like in order to feel emotionally secure, would then that be the answer to everything? Would she then be free of these doubts? Would she be absolutely trusting in his love for her? Or would those doubts or those seeds of doubt still be propagating at some level? So again, it, it's like all of these things, everything starts and ends with the self. So how can she go in and rescue herself, care for herself, be present for herself mm. in what this has thrown up for her, in how she has previously defined herself in relationships, possibly? So how do you rescue yourself? <laughs> yeah, good question. How do you rescue yourself? I'll give you one start. Tenderly. Tenderly, yes. I think I, there's, a, there's a brilliant book called The Compassionate Mind I've just finished reading by Paul Gilbert, and it's based around compassion. And I think when ego states are fairly strong, where they're playing out in an unexamined sense, then the idea of tenderness, as you say, and compassion kind of gets squeezed out. We get so entrenched into being these soldiers of virtue with our battles and our swords and our shields that we lose a sense of our humanity and we need to give ourselves more space to go in there. And I'm hoping, and again, the stuff through therapy, through this self-reflection, through this examination of what the roles we automatically play, if we just stop playing them, if it, even if it's just for a moment and wonder who else we are beyond those roles, then we're moving into the transpersonal realms, which I think are really ultimately healing and full of meaning. So I've got a question to ask yourself, and that is, what wounds of myself am I not attending to while I'm busy attending to somebody else's wounds? And I think that would be a, a very useful question to ask yourself. And then once you know what your wounds are, you know, how can I tend to those wounds? Because the great thing is, we can work on ourselves. That's always available to us. Mm -hmm. Getting other people to change is outside our power. But um, looking at ourselves, changing ourselves, I mean, it's bloody difficult, but it is at least in our power. Yes, absolutely. And if we don't look at ourselves, reflect on ourselves, then as rescuers, we martyr ourselves. We will eventually offer ourselves over and be the ultimate martyr archetype you know, crucify ourselves on, on, on the cross of, of virtue and selflessness and never really reflect on who we really are. And that is, as you go back to those three questions, is what I believe we're all here to really do, ultimately. Well, thank you very much for being my guest today, Chris, and my witness for The Meaningful Life. So as a witness on this path, I have to ask you the question, what makes your life meaningful? Yes, love, lovely question to reflect. And I did give it some thought, obviously, over the last few days. And what immediately comes to my mind is that the very seeking of meaning makes my life meaningful. It's the act of seeking meaning. 
I think we are naturally meaning-seeking creatures. We naturally try to look for themes and patterns in things, and that's why therapy can be so helpful, because it can join up dots that we may not previously have joined up. But the fact that we have the capability of seeing meaning is meaningful, because we then become creators once, once we can actually accept that we have the capability of seeing meaning then we create with life almost what we what we want so that moves us into a fairly spiritually powerful position i always think that life the analogy i use is life throws you a, a lump of crude clay and we have to sort of put it on our potter's wheel and get it to spin round quite fast see it and know it from every angle and we can fashion something beautiful and useful out of what is a raw crude piece of clay so again it comes back to the idea that we are able to respond in a way which gives meaning to things rather than just be a victim to what happens well chris i could talk forever to you unfortunately this is where the conversation has to end for most of our listeners but if you are a supporter of the meaningful life the conversation continues there's all sorts of things i want to ask um, chris about and our conversation will continue we're going to look at the word happiness and there is two ways of looking at that word as an acronym that presents two radically different versions of of life. Uh, It's really powerful. I'd love to share that with you. Come over to our bonus material and we'll do that. I'm also going to um, ask Chris a a few personal questions as well that I haven't had time to ask so far as well. So if you want to find out about that in a moment, I will um, give you details of how to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life. If you're an Apple subscriber, you'll find there's a button that will allow you to subscribe to the bonus material and the same if you're with Spotify as well. And here comes those details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you. Thank you.